this is FYI, a series of podcasts featuring the biggest challenges in marketing and advertising telling their stories. These are honest and open conversations and will break down the barriers as to the who, the why, the what and the how of best-in-class marketeers from a variety of different sectors. Each week we'll be profiling a different person, learning about their journey and having a bit of fun along the way. This week's podcast guest is David Orman, founder of Hatch House, a venture consultancy with specialist knowledge in emerging trends and technologies in the sport and media sectors. David has a really unique background across a variety of different sectors. These include venture capital, startups, marketing, digital media, entertainment and sport. We talked to David about his fascinating career starting at Eurosport Television, where he became sales director across the US, UK and Scandinavia, and has since worked for some of the world's most high-profile entrepreneurs at companies including Juiced, Queen's Park Rangers Football Club, Templewood Merchant Bank and Outer Capital. My name is Chris Gunn, co-founder and managing director of Love Gun, and this is FYI with David Orman. With each of these podcasts, we'd like to jump straight in with some quick-fire questions. Summer or winter? Winter. Would you rather always have to wear a suit or always have to wear a tracksuit? <laughs> I'm gonna say tracksuit. I think it's yeah. a tough one. It's got to be. You've got to go comfort, right? You've got two personalities, haven't you? They're never the twain should meet. <laughs> yeah, very words. true. Um, favorite social media platform? I'll say TikTok, but purely for my eight-year-old daughter. Nice. Taking me TikToks. Okay. Um, QPR win the Premier League or England win the World Cup? Oh, QPR Premier League. Favorite holiday destination? Uh, favourite ever was probably Safari on honeymoon and most recently probably Disney with the kids nice world or Paris we went to Florida so yeah nice you went all out Uh, nickname have you got a nickname yeah I am Stormin as I have been since childhood and Dorman Stormin and Stormin Dorman ah Uh, what would be your last meal probably Taramasalata and pita bread nice very simple um, and are you, a, are you a podcast listener? No, not. I've listened to a few business podcasts, but don't love them, to be honest with you. I find them quite too methodical. Um, people don't speak quite freely enough. Um, but I have been listening to the Peter Crouch podcast, I think, with the rest of the world over lockdown, which has kept me thoroughly entertained. Yeah, nice one. I agree. So uh, on that note, let's let's keep this podcast uh, nice and uh, nice and open That's and nice. uh, and real. Uh, cool. So that was the the quick fire. Pr- relatively unscathed with those. Um, some of the other ones have been very random. So yeah, as I said, David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Let's start. You know, at the beginning. So you're initially you're in sales, right? Yeah, my first job out of uni um, was working for EMAP Construct, selling recruitment advertising on the back of construction news magazine, which was possibly the most fun job, the hardest job, but the most lucrative job I've ever had. Nice. Lucrative in terms of commission? Yeah, it was just, it was funny. It was like you kind of step into the working world. I always remember this, but... um, Back in the day, they used to record your phone calls and uh, play them back to you and talk about buying signals. And when was somebody interested? When did you lose them? What could you have done differently? And uh, actually, a, a guy I'm still friendly with now used to kind of like whip me into shape week after week. And you have this light bulb moment that the more, it's like when you're at school, you don't really listen to stuff. You don't know how you're going to use that information. But yeah. If you start out your career in sales, I would say, the kind of light bulb moment for me was the more attentive I was to the information that was that was given to me by the company to go and pitch that information to listen to people, um, the better I was at selling. Yeah. And the better I was at selling, the more money I made. <laughs> and, um, that kind of was a good equation. I was kind of like, that's that kind of makes sense to me. So that's kind of how my career in sales kind of took off. Yeah. Would you say sales comes came naturally to you then? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a natural salesperson. Like uh, I do like I do like doing a deal. Uh, I think everybody should. Everybody, you know, that's, that's kind of can keep you motivated. Mm. Um, people would say, my colleagues would say about me that it doesn't matter if it's a five hundred pound deal or a five million pound deal. To me, it's it's the same thing. Yeah, uh, it's not totally money motivated. 
which I think to be a real hardcore salesperson you need to be. Mm. Um, but I do like you know creative selling. So it's not always just shipping the same product to customers day in day out, but actually thinking more strategically, more understanding how you can work with people, not just trying to make a bit of dough, bit of cash. Yeah, um, that's really what's kind of floats my boat. Yeah, else. agreed. And when you left uni, was it? Did you? Did you? You know, you you kind of fixated on I want to be in sales. No, I went to a recruitment fair, having completed a geography degree, <laughs> the average uh, geography degree, not having a clue what I wanted to do in my life, and I saw a sign saying media, and I thought to myself, that sounds fun. I know what media is, <laughs> and um, went for a few interviews, landed a job, and said to myself, I'd figure it out from there. And um, quite frankly, I got I got pretty lucky. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I think I, I remember when graduating from uni and, you know, speaking to recruiters straight away and everybody's like, you know, have you considered sales? You know, this could be this could be a good avenue to go down. And uh, yeah, I think, well, start, I would love to claim that, you know, I chose I chose branding. I think, you know, initially I actually fell into it to an extent. So, uh, uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, I think the interesting thing there is that anybody who gets to a senior level in an organisation especially if you look at the lawyers and accountants and they used to say they hate salespeople. They never want to be a salesperson. Yeah. And as soon as you've got some form of P&L responsibility or you run your own business, mm. everything's about, you know, how do I market myself to my customers? How do I get people to spend money with whatever product or service it is I'm offering? Um, and I've had a lot of my you know, contacts, friends, colleagues, whatever, would say to me that they wish they've just done a year hardcore selling mm. because it's a skill that you're, you're always going to need. Yeah, fundamental. And, and also, yeah, you, you roll them out across any role, really, don't you? One of the Hatch House rules, anything that we work on, anybody, any business we advise, we always say that everybody in your organisation is a potential salesperson, should be helping you win business in some way, shape or form. It's one of like, the key rules, the key drivers that we, we bring into companies. Too many people rely on, you know, the... The lonely salespeople stuck in a corner of a room um, go out there, go make money for the rest of us. Well, everybody has an opportunity to bring revenue to their business. So um, I think it's, it's far too forgotten about. Yeah. So is that a, a recruitment driver for you then when, in terms of when you're, uh, you're you're speaking to someone, you know, bringing them into the company that they 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 do have that sales nature? Don't have to have a sales nature, but... Um, I think the first time I realised it, I was consulting for a design agency and I was talking to some of the designers and they had a real passion for, um, one had a passion for music, one had a passion for museums, one had a passion for motorsport and the projects they'd be working on day to day had nothing to do with their areas of interest. So I used to say to some of them, just, you know, kind of having a coffee or whatever in the kitchen, you'd go, what kind of brands did you want to work on? You know, what's your dream scenario? You know, what's because I'm fortunate enough to have done that in my career. Um, I just wanted, I wanted people to feel what I'd felt in having that control over creating a brand or recreating a brand. Um, and when you're so passionate about the work that you're doing day in day out, it doesn't feel like a job. Mm. Um, and therefore, you're more enthusiastic going into work. You're more positive. You do better work. And if you can then start bringing in new business to that business, that, that agency, whatever company it may be, everybody's then kind of uh, helping to, you know, hit the targets to make profit and to share in that profit. And it's not in any way suggesting that it takes out, you know, takes more than, you know, 5% of their day. But everybody's got a responsibility to, to bring success. And absolutely. And that was the motivator for us, you know, when we started Love Gun. We wanted to work with clients um, and brands and businesses that we were, you know, enthusiastic about. And that was a big a big driver when we're talking to potential recruits or, um, you know, bringing in, you know, designers or, you know, account managers or anyone. It's actually like, you know, in a start, we can, we can tailor who we bring in as a business based on the the interests and the the needs of our staff so i think you know that's that's definitely super important so I'd also say from the, from the work that you do you know the way that you when we met you um you know you're not really selling yourselves you were selling ideas yeah out of all the agencies that, that we were interviewing at that time for for one of the projects we were working on you were the guys that came in and just shared ideas and for me that is salesmanship but you weren't selling yeah, you're basically giving us a context of how we could work with you and the ideas that you would build upon once we actually formalise a relationship with you. And I think that's 
that's an amazing talent to have because you know anybody can come up with the ideas and it's working but it's sharing those ideas at that point which is going to help you guys grow your business mm-hmm. uh, exponentially yeah and you know the creative is king at the end of the day so uh, yeah that was that was why we're here that's so a good to hear and um, going back to your sales journey then i might be fast forwarding a few years here but then you went to eurosport right is that was that your first venture into the sporting landscape yeah i've been uh, emailed for about 11 months and a friend of mine actually gave me a call one day and he said you're in sales we're looking for a salesperson uh come and meet my bosses um the interview took place in a pub of about six pints of Guinness. Nice, perfect. Um, and I'm not a big drinker. Uh, <laughs> I started probably, you know, the, the most fortuitous person in the world. I started at Eurosport right at the bottom. And within about six years, I think I was running the UK, US and Scandinavian markets, working on the biggest sports events, uh, helping to launch new at the time innovative platforms. Um, new motorsports formats you know we got involved in so many different things it was such an amazing place to learn and we sat very much you know and the part of our sales role was to to go find out what brands wanted to do and we did some crazy stuff like creating content with adidas athletes or um, martial arts videos with uh, with movie stars and anything we could do to create a campaign to monetize the channel uh, but also to, to to create some you know fun content, um, and I think that taught me that's really was all about creative selling. It was the rule was be first at the bar, be last at the bar, but be first in in the morning. Mm. Work bloody hard, um, but have great fun while you do it. And mm. uh, I was trained there by you know a succession of brilliant um, people who I'm still very friendly with and admire hugely. Um, it really had a huge impact on my career and, um, and still do so today. So in terms of your role there, was it predominantly, you know, when you're talking about the, the, the sales role and obviously how you built up there um, to, to being in, in charge, basically, what, uh, what, what did that entail? Because obviously it was early 2000s, right? So was it all based around the Eurosport um, TV channel or, you know, you talk about the events? So, yes, we had a... Uh... So when I was running the, the UK, US, Scandinavia, fundamentally it was about 40% of Eurosport's advertising revenue. I also got a little bit involved in the running of the, the British Eurosport channel, uh, just supporting them and what they were doing. Um, and also quite uh, central to the kind of commercial direction of the business at the time as part of the, the commercial um, committee and headed up in Paris. But um, it was all about, you had uh, international media, international advertising, so Pan Regional Channel meant that you could get access to international budgets. There are companies which have a mark, central marketing budget and they split it out into local markets. And there's other companies that basically controlled it from the centre. And the money was spent through the media agencies, the big media trading groups. So our job there was to get to know the media agency groups inside out. Again, some people I'm still very friendly with today are the people I did very early deals with. Uh, at a young age, I did some, some, some big deals and those people... We did good deals. There were great deals on both sides. They worked for us. They worked for the agency. They worked for the client. Uh, and I think when you do those good deals, when you look back over your career, those relationships you built up, creating those opportunities, putting those deals together, um, have led to you know very strong bonds with those people for for you know ten, fifteen, twenty years now. Mm, interesting. So, in terms of those those big deals you're talking about, what sticks out in terms of your time at Eurosport is the is the deal. Not necessarily, you know, you talk about it doesn't have to be financial or monetary, but what was what was a big one for you? The first one I ever did when I was I was too too junior to be doing it, but I was kind of left to my own devices. Was I brought Kubo tires in, and I think I was the first person to ever find a sponsor for truck racing on Eurosport. And it was the biggest book of it, obviously. People watched this stuff on Eurosport. <laughs> I actually found a sponsor who wanted to sponsor the program. So I became like a hero. I think I was like 24 years old. It was like, how did anybody sell tractor pulling, you know, truck <laughs> racing? It was like the most ridiculous thing. There was a tiny budget with a kind of an independent agency. But I think that actually when I did that deal, it almost they, they, they my, my bosses and gave, gave me the opportunity to go and do more deals like that. Mm. Um, some of the best and the most fun work we ever did was things like an Air Canada campaign with the guys who invest in the can, um, guys like um, Lee Hawkins, Jonathan Hopkins, Lewis Pearl, uh, Phil Coverdale, 
um, James Rinkshaw, Martin Middleton, all these guys, and we would do these deals. And we came up with some brilliant creative concepts. Um, Air Canada had this tagline called Defying Convention. Yeah. I don't know how I remember this now, but we created a vignette series, this kind of mini video clips, way, way, way before the likes of YouTube ever, you know, ever came into to being. And we, we just created these 60 second clips of sports people defying convention, doing things that shouldn't be done. I remember we did the Fosbury flop, the, the famous high jump, the first yeah. jump over backwards. And then we did the Roberto Carlos free kick in Le Tournoi, where <laughs> the left foot curl around the wall, yeah. the outside of the wall and in again. And we, we use Hawkeye graphics in the very, very early days of Hawkeye to measure the trajectory of that of the ball spinning around the wall. And then we went back to Roberto Carlos with the same guys from you know, from uh, McCann's to do a Texas Instruments campaign, again, to kind of a similar concept. Uh, and many, 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 many years later, and about a couple of years ago, I was working with a sports agency uh, who represent Roberto Carlos, and we actually got to create the Roberto Carlos icon RC3, and the designer that I worked with create, uh, worked with me to kind of create the, the letter, the number three, the curvature of his three, is taken from that trajectory of the ball spinning around the wall. And I love the fact that that was kind of something I did very early on in my career, and I kind of came back to it again, and also with my favourite ever football player, being a left-back myself. <laughs> um, you know, it's amazing to, to have done that, to be talking to Roberto Carlos on FaceTime, saying, you know, we're going to create a brand for you, just like Beckham's got on everybody else. You should have one yourself. Um, yeah, great fun. Wow, definitely a, a bit of a baptism of fire then in terms of uh, yeah the the exploration variety of different projects and yeah working working with your hero that's pretty good. So talking about heroes to uh, to your you know your boyhood club obviously you're a QPR fan um, and you know you had a you had a few more roles in your journey before moving to QPR as commercial director which we'll talk about in a moment. But what what kind of turned your head leaving Eurosport and, and into your next roles? What what was what had you decided you wanted to do or what where you wanted to go? I just got a call to go and meet somebody about a job at a new American v, uh, American VC backed startup. Uh, called Massive Incorporated and I think when I decided to take that job if I'm really honest with you it was for years people had bought through me spending money on Eurosport and I had this little personally eating away at me kind of going are people buying me or are they buying Eurosport have I got strong enough relationships strong enough reputation have I done good enough deals in the past that people would invest in me again and the decision I'd made to go to this fledgling company. And um, that was in part one of the most rewarding parts of my career when I kind of all of a sudden after eight years walking with my Eurosport PowerPoint presentations, taking a tiny bit of time out and then knocking back on the doors of people that knew me for, for so many years and kind of going, you know, I'm here with something different today. This is about the future. This is about innovation. We're going to put advertising in computer games. Yeah. in real time it's like you serve a banner on a on a website we can do it in a computer game mm. uh, there are lots of companies by the way doing this now today yeah. we were doing it back in 2004 2005 I think it was yeah um, and that business got acquired for about 200 million after I'd been there six months wow so I did very well I only been there for a short amount of time yeah uh, and it gives you a bit of that startup bug what, so what sort of games are we talking Oh, I can't remember. It was like CSGO. I remember putting, remember if, you, if you remember the film V for Vendetta. Yeah. Uh, we did a whole big campaign. I think it was CSGO, an early iteration of it. And we graffitied up like some of the subways and train tracks by serving advertising in um, this kind of graffiti V that was in the movie. Nice. And it was a brilliant campaign. I worked with a guy called Chris Beaumont at uh, Warner Brothers, who also became a very good friend of mine. Um, and it was great. I mean, we didn't have the distribution. Mm. Uh, really, you didn't have the eyeballs for that company to really um, to go on full thrusters, but we were again creating with a few brands to showcase what it looks like to, to advertise a brand inside of a game and make it feel authentic. Well, that's as you said, something that's done done a lot now. But uh, yeah, it sounds like you were you were one of the first to do it. So in terms of when the acquisition went through, you thought you know this isn't for me now. In terms of being bought out, you wanted to you want you, you had the taste of startups and you wanted to go go work with another well, one. We got the we got the uh, call saying we're going to be two people across to uh, Microsoft, 
Uh, I then had a call with my boss in uh, New York, a guy called Nick Loria, who was also absolutely brilliant. We had the most amazing commercial team that came together at Massive. Uh, could have sold anything to anybody. I then got offered a, a job at 19 Entertainment, which was uh, something I couldn't turn down, you know, working on Brand Beckham and, and the rest of it. I wasn't a highlight of my career. Um, <laughs> just Beckham went to LA, I got made redundant. It was the first time that I kind of felt like I'd failed. Mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of first kind of decade of huge success. Yeah. Um, kind of knocked the wind out of my sails. I kind of walked out of the, the 19 offices one day, kind of going, shit, I can't believe that's happened. Um, called my boss from Massive going, you know, you mentioned a startup to me that you wanted me to join. What's, what's the status? And he mm. said, well, funny enough, we've just started interviewing people in the UK. You start tomorrow. <laughs> and that was uh, you know absolutely brilliant and um that's a confidence boost if you needed one <laughs> absolutely it's at the right time in you and we worked for the skype guys on their first their next approach the next kind of disruption model which was trying to break the back of tv so it was my first experience in ott a platform called juiced and uh again, a brilliant team of people what a you know what a fantastic um, the ideas that we came up with, the way that we worked hard. And first time I'd seen a startup where it wasn't about nine to five, you know, long gone were those days. People were sleeping on the sofas overnight. We had deliverables, we had VCs chasing us to hit targets. And as a commercial team with the guys from New York and LA, a guy called Eric Lemmerser, I worked with in Paris. Uh, Eric and I were like a dual act in Europe, and we made I think between Eric and I, we did about half a million dollars worth of advertising confirmed before the platform launched. We did the same in the US. We pretty much had about a million dollars worth of committed revenue. We're talking about from Warner Brothers, Nike, General Motors, um, uh, Vodafone, uh, uh, Intel. It goes on. We had every, you know, one brand from each category. And it was the first time I remember I was in Mindshare presenting Juice. And I basically, it was the first time I stopped selling and the agencies were selling to me to want to be part of the Juice launch because there was such a kind of fanfare about what we were doing. The agencies who were all powerful, all of a sudden were like demanding. The guy that was running forward pulled me out of a meeting and screamed at me that we'd let General Motors on ahead of them. <laughs> we were like, first come, first served. I think they signed Unilever up. 24 hours it took me to walk into the YouTube, um, McCann Eric's, I think it was, and literally within 24 hours, I had a signed letter of intent from them saying, you leave and want to be part of our launch package. Wow. Um, and that was going like, brilliantly well, a great experience, an amazing team. Um, and I got a call one day from my ex-Eurosport boss and the Eurosport president. They'd both since left Eurosport. They obviously knew me very, very well. And they said to me, uh, this uh, Italian friend of ours has taken over a a football team in London. You've probably never heard of this team. You're our commercial guy. Uh, We need you to come and help us. Uh, Leave your job and come and work for this football club. And I said, you're talking about Flavio Briatore and QPR? And they said, yes, yes, yes. I said, well, you probably won't believe this, but I've been a QPR fan and season ticket holder since I was four years old. Amazing. This is like my dream job. This is going to be a wind-up. And I went to meet Flavio uh, in his offices on Brompton Road and had about a 45-second interview with him and uh, got offered the job. Met Alejandro Agar, who's now obviously the uh, founder of, uh, of Formula E. Um, we worked very closely with Alejandro for a number of years at QPR, and we you know, hit it off from there and were given like literally the dream job. Go away on your honeymoon. I was getting married at the time. Now. Like, literally, on your honeymoon, we want you to recreate the QPR crest. Come back, we're going to redo the stadium, kick out all the existing sponsors, bring in a whole new array, array of sponsors, completely transform the commercial um, uh, part of the club, um, new retail, new digital. Uh, the whole thing was completely turned upside down. And um, again, worked with, you know, it was an absolute dream job. I mean, literally the first two was you couldn't make it up. Yeah. Um, everything from making a movie, which has just been publicised again last weekend. It's an idea that I had late one night with a production company, a guy who runs a production company, who's another good friend of mine, just came up with a completely crazy idea. 
we pitched the board and we wanted to capture the transformation on the film. You know, okay. in the film, let's see how we're going to do this. Yeah. So fly on the wall style, like Leeds and Man City, and uh... yeah, it was the first one of those. I think it was the QPR four year plan, is what it was called, because of a comment Flavia made, completely unprompted, in a, uh, one of our press conferences when he said we've got four years to hit the Premier League, um, and we made it in four years. Nice. And just football is the most difficult business to work in from every angle, but also the most fascinating. So, in terms of moving to QPR, then, as you said, boyhood fan, season ticket holder, was it? Did it? Did it live up to all your dreams and expectations? Or you know, you say it was chaos and busy, but you know, what was the experience like? There's definitely two sides of it. Um, so I give this presentation. I've given it like a Loughborough University a few times and stuff. But you kind of the, the first day was actually quite demoralising because you walk in, you expect a, a huge business, the powerhouse of football. Uh, and the reality was he walked into an office which had very few people in it um, that, you know, with computers that were definitely out of date, no investment, no inward investment in the team, and the team that had been there for, for years, um, and the most amazing people in that team that are loyal beyond the realms of, uh, you know, anything else you've ever experienced in your, in your career, who understood the club, who understood the fan base, who understood how to communicate, how to look after the fans and the, the VIPs and the ticketing and the retail. They really understood what it meant to be a QPR fan. And then you had this new wave of, uh, of money coming into the club and all the profile and the connections to Formula One. And it was a, it was a transformation that wasn't, wasn't simple to put in place. But kind of going back to my first day, I just remember looking at this CRM, the, uh, the database of all of our fans. I don't know why it was one of the first things that got sent to me. And I found my name and found the client reference number. And I just had this realisation that uh, I wasn't a fan, I was a customer. And fundamentally, that is the business of football. It is knowing, you know, the average spend per fan is what leads these, these football businesses. And... Um, Increasing the spend per fan is what you're trying to do as a commercial director and a marketing director of a football club. That is inevitably your job. Yeah. Um, to build your database, to grow your fan base, and then to monetize it. And there's a slight conflict there between being a real, ardent, loyal football fan. I'm QPR. Nobody loves QPR more than me. That's kind of how I looked at it. Um, and then just thinking about the commercial realities and the, the, the challenges I was uh, asked to deliver. By, by my bosses, by the owners of the club. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, going into, you know, being a fan, being a customer, actually, like, do you, do you think it goes full te- full circle? Because, you know, you acknowledge them as customers, but then you want them to act like a fan, just like all other brands want fans, because they want to evoke that fa- that, that loyalty that football, get, football clubs get naturally. I think football has this massive unfair advantage. If you, if you called up from, uh, from Love Gun or from anyone with clients, you know, typical brand high street retailers, you know, or assurance companies, and you call a random person and you say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about something I'd like to sell you today. We well, you know how that goes, right? It feels like a PPI call. You call up and you say, hi, it's David here from QPR. Hey, tell me, how are you doing? You know, uh, how's the captain doing? And yeah. any news on that new manager? And, uh, <laughs> any chance you can get this for me? And then during the call, you go, and by the way, do you want to buy that upgrade to that hospitality seat or come to the player of the year um, you have this natural affinity, this natural connection to your fan base, and you know the, the trick is obviously not to be seen to be selling to them, mm. but to be rewarding them for their loyalty and um, giving them access to, to things inside the club. But I kind of again something I talk about quite a lot is communication from inside to the football club to the fan base, and looking at the the diversity of that fan base, the different types of fans, the different participation as fans have with the club, having one central brand message that works across all your different fan bases, both around the stadium and across the world, is one of the hardest marketing conundrums I think that you can face. And I suppose it, it, you know, for a club like QPR as well, you've got the you've got the direct competition of all these different clubs in London. So you know you've got you've got competition right on your doorstep, but also you know you've got all of the you know, all of the other Premier League Championship clubs 
um, around you in the UK. So in terms of what what was your what was your, your greatest achievement whilst at QPR, or, or something that sticks out as the you know that I'm proud of this or I enjoyed this. I missed one of my best friend's stag dudes the day that we did the full relaunch, beginning of the season in August 2008, um, uh, must have been. Uh, new brand, new sponsors, um, new retail shop, new design around the stadium, new communications, new program, new, new everything. When I think about stress and pressure that we've all had in our career, we all face day to day. I have never in my life done so much to make everything try and work like clockwork, bring a team together, make sure the whole day kind of flows from start to finish. Of course, this is you know a small part to do with me and a large part to do with everybody else around the ground from the all the stewards and the security guards and the operational guys and the, the guys running the shop and the ticketing and everything else. Um, uh, and the people I work with day to day in the team, in my team, and uh, and also the guy that, that I work with at QPR, who had football experience and knew how to do this stuff. And I think taking the job, I was quite naive, uh, thinking how I worked in sport for years. I know how to run a football club. It's a fundamentally different thing. And uh, Ali Russell again is also a former email, and you know we we did rest a lot on his knowledge and experience of having worked in football before to know how to implement a lot of this stuff. So. So yeah, I'm thankful that he was there in a way, but um, that was an amazing feat to put that all together in a very short time frame. Yeah, and uh, it all went off successfully. There is a funny story about the the advertising hoardings that didn't appear uh, until about five to three on the Saturday afternoon, which I managed to, to find a solution for. Should we say thank, thanks to, to Matt who actually eventually put them in? Um, <laughs> but uh, that was one of the most comedy, um, high pressure situations you could ever ever imagine having. <laughs> so was it a case of before kickoff running? with advertising boards putting them up or somebody had been very rude to the guy who had worked extremely hard to get all of our inventory advertising inventory sponsorship board ready uh, somebody had been exceptionally rude to them the night before and they had basically told us to go and go fuck ourselves and uh, he's not going to come and put them in the next day and he was uh, locked up his garage with all the, uh, the prints and said, tough luck. And I turned up in the stadium at like, you know, 12 o'clock, and I'm going, where are they? And it took us about two hours to get hold of them. The guy we sent somebody down to go and find him. Eventually got the guy on the phone, apologised profusely for somebody else, now they behave. And um, thank God the guy drove his truck to the stadium and literally was screwing them in, like, as Flavio and Bernie are kind of walking, and the Mittals are walking down for the first game of the season. <laughs> and... Um, you know, everything was set in place. We were revealing the new crest and uh, that I knew was going to be a drama in itself because it was something I'd had to do with uh, actually the Renault creative director and I worked on it um, and we were trying to rescue um, what it was and, you know, it didn't go down too well with the QPR fans, but there was a, you know, a specific reason why it was done. <laughs> it was the way it was done. Uh, being a QPR fan, it wasn't easy to implement, shall we say. <laughs> I can imagine. So uh, the, your your time at QPR then it was uh, yeah a bit of a, a mixed journey, and you know we I, we've obviously known each other for a while and uh, have various conversations around you know how you engage fans and uh, I, I had to bring up the 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 phrase fan engagement which David Orman for a fact hates the phrase fan engagement. Tell us why. I think it was at uh, one of the conferences last year and there's a sat in every presentation. And every conversation I had in between those presentations talked about fan engagement. And I just kind of sat there and I thought, just thought back to the times in football or any other thing that I've ever done. I'm like, fans don't want to be engaged. They just want to have fun. They want to go out with their friends, with their family, with their kids, whatever. They want to go out on an entertaining fun day out. Um, they have brands forcing messaging messages at them that are too uh, manufactured and you know they're too programmed. And actually, the, I think sometimes it's just just go and entertain, just go and have fun, just go and um, be a little bit more relaxed about this strategy that you're trying to implement. And I guarantee you're going to have more success. And it's, you know, you look everywhere, uh, everywhere across sport, and they talk about fan engagement. Um, you know, typically, you know if, you know, if you look at the sporting model, you know, I'm a QPR fan. I want to I wanna consume QPR content, wherever that comes from, however that comes through whatever social media platform. But, when I'm inside the club, 
I'm realizing that the, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to engage my fan base. I'm trying to get them to live and breathe QPR all day long, but, all, but through me. So as the asset holder, you know, come to my platform, engage in my platform and my, in my content that I'm creating that I can distribute to you. You start, you see what I mean? You start to get into the, the, the vernacular that the industry uses. Mm-hmm. When you start to program things, you start to think about actually how my marketing communication is going to work. It just becomes buzzword bingo. It becomes yeah, agreed. Very, um, the authenticity is completely lost. Yeah, start, starts to mean nothing, right? Yeah, sports fans generally, they see through that. Especially kids today, more and more so. They're just not going to be told, you know, this is the way that you have to consume this media. You, you literally, I was looking at... Um, on my website the other day, I hate the language. You know, you're using industry type language and to think, I think the businesses that are becoming more successful today are just businesses that communicate with a bit of personality. This is who we are. This is how we speak. We're speaking to you on a level. We're not trying to, you know, manufacture a situation here. Yeah. I don't know if that all makes sense, but it's... No, 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 I get it. And it's it's about authenticity, isn't it? And, you know, we have, uh, obviously, you know, we work a lot in sport as well, and we have lots of conversations, and the, the, the phrase fan engagement comes up is because every football club and every sports brand, and, well, every brand wants to engage fans, um, and they want the, you know, the latest ideas or the, the new innovations around how they can do that. But actually, it's like, you know, it's identifying the problem and, you know, seeing where the communication is breaking down or where, you know, the, the engagement is lost and actually looking at campaigns and activations around that. Um, and it's not all, it's not, yeah, as you say, the, the, the phrase fan engagement actually means nothing. It's it's really understanding what's behind it. Right, what do you mean? You're, you're at QPR or you're at Chelsea, Man United, you're at any sport, it doesn't matter. You basically have your loyal on fans. Fundamentally, those become your patrons, your, your season ticket holders, your members. And they're going to, you know, in football, they are the lifeblood of the club. They're going to be there, come hell or hard water, whatever league you're in, pretty much QPR or you, 30% of the stadium is going to be filled out by season ticket holders at any one time, less, yeah. slightly less than 30%. Then your job as a marketing director of that club, what have you got to do next? You've got to bring in the people that sometimes want to come or that could buy a QPR kit for themselves or somebody in their family or as a present or something, that could purchase something on your e-commerce site and watch a bit more of your content or sign up to your OTT solution. And I think that's where you start talking about engagement. But really what you're basically saying is, I've got my core. I'm now looking at kind of my outer layers and I'm just trying to get them more involved with the club. I just want them to enjoy it more. I want them to feel like they want to wake up on a Monday morning and they want to read the news about how we performed on the weekend and some unique insight that comes from the manager or, you know, the captain, whatever. And... They don't feel like they're being marketed to and being fished and like hooked out and like come come here come here. Yeah, it's actually you've got to make that that direct choice yourself to to actually want to engage and uh, like to not engage just to just to keep in touch with the, the, the latest news and the mm-hmm. latest things that you can do and, and through that natural affinity that you have because it's in the blood. Maybe you become more loyal because the club are giving you something you can't get anywhere else, and I think that's. The impact on social media, on the clubs, and control of their own fan bases has been, you know, hugely detrimental, hugely valuable for a number of years, and now yeah. hugely detrimental because mm-hmm. they've lost that direct connection. And I think if you talk to federations and clubs today, that's what they're worried about. They're worried about that natural affinity that they had with every kid that loved football. They're distracted now by other things such as Fortnite, gaming, yeah, esports, etc. Um, or short highlight clips of football as opposed to the full 90 minutes. Mm. Um, and these are the challenges that the rights holders uh, face today. And yeah, I suppose that's that's every club's dream, isn't it? It's actually, you know, in terms of moving on to digital, which is inspired by the social generation. But, you know, how, how do they engage as much as the likes of Fortnite and FIFA and those types of brands? So what, what do you see as the future in terms of, you know, fan fun? Not fan engagement. Um, what? What? Yeah. What? What? What do? What do clubs or sports brands need to need to be doing moving forwards? Do you think? Well, I kind of bring it back to the reason the idea of the QPR film was was um, so forefront uh, in my mind when I started the QPR because I got to see as a QPR fan behind the scenes. 
what interested me was, you know, the first time I went to the training ground and you see pockets of players and it literally just reminds you of being back at school. You had the old English stalwarts sitting on a table together. You had the black guys sitting on one table together. You had the Eastern European guys all sitting together wearing their colourful jumpers. It was literally like being back at school and having a lot of social groups that didn't quite intermingle. I thought that was fascinating. I thought it was fascinating watching them on the training ground and how they'd lark around and take the mickey out of each other. And, um, and then the other side of it, the skills. I remember watching Man United training. Um, I sat next to I sat in the dugout. Uh, Man United were flying in overnight between games and had a European game in, in London. I can't remember. It must have been a UEFA game, in, like a Champions League game in London or something. Um, at Chelsea or, or wherever it was but they trained at our stadium and uh, I went down to the pitch sat in the dugout and I watched Ronaldo and Tevez and Rooney and Nani all come out and start kicking the ball around and I was just thinking to myself I get it now I said I've, I've you know warmed up for a number of football games in my career in my career in my Sunday league career I should say but um, but I've never seen anything like this it's the power the control the accuracy um, the skills that these guys had and also the, they were completely different breeds to the QPR players and the way that they were built and uh, Ronaldo comes and sits next to me on the bench and you can just imagine like you know you sit next to this absolute legend but he is a machine he's mechanical yeah um, and I just wanted to showcase some of that you don't get to see a lot of that you get to see the Sky Sports and the BT Sports production mm. Um, but they always kind of veer away from the cameras when I'm kind of watching who's talking to who uh, on the pitch. You saw the other night Mendy and Lacazette having a really long conversation when um, yeah, Garcia uh, was down. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like I was like, that's the kind of that's what I wanted to know about football. Yeah, because it's the real people behind the facade. Yeah, um, I think that is what sports people are because of social media. Because the US market, you know, they are so much more more forward in the way that they talk to the fans and. I'm so much more comfortable in front of the media. Yeah. I think we're going to start to see that has to come from football next. Mm. Um, yeah, comes back to this authenticity, doesn't it? And I think, you know, it's the it's the behind the scenes, but also it's like when BT Sport came in, you know, everyone was everyone was so used to Sky Sports, you know, formulaic, you know, super Sunday. It goes, you know, you hear the theme tune, then it goes to the studio. You've got all this, you know, epicness and then BT Sport come in and they do something as simple as move the move the score bar to the from the top to the bottom and everyone's like, "Whoa, what's going on here?" And then they obviously innovation yeah but they they introduced you know the behind the scenes content like you know last year's champions league final um that piece of behind 10 minute behind the scenes content i think i can't remember what it's called behind the scenes or something like that was unbelievable and actually that you know you, you want to see that rather that you want to see the goals you want to see the passion you want to see the reaction of the fans you want to see what's going on behind the stadium you want to see warming up um it's all about everything in and around um, the actual ninety minutes of football that is, you know, it's become um, the, the 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 main event, I suppose. I think that's 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 the biggest conflict. You, you kind of these are really it's quite difficult to answer these questions I mean, on a podcast. I'd love to be able to draw this out and kind of explain. Because there's a kind of a pyramid model that, that, that I use to talk about the, the the fan bases and where the money comes from in the club and how you're trying to build the revenue from the. There's a whole big strategy piece that we do around it. And um, fundamentally, I think the biggest challenge of working in, 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 in a football club or a rights holder is how do you control your own commercial success when so much is reliant on, you know, the performance of the team yeah. and individual players within that team. Yeah. And that's what everybody talks about. But it, it literally is, if you lost on a Saturday, you know, you've, you've worked six days that week, pretty much, you know, you're... Uh, You've got a Sunday to recuperate. My wife actually found it all very, very hard when I was at QPR because I was so tired on a Saturday. I saw on a Saturday evening, I couldn't go out. I was too tired. Sometimes coming back from an away game. And on a Sunday, I was just like, literally all I wanted to do was just, just chill. And uh, before I went again for another six days, I and mean, it is relentless working in sport. There is all, and again, this is, goes back to the, the credit I give to the people that, that are at QPR today that have been there for years. It's just you're on a constant hamster wheel and there's always a new issue and a new problem. And these mm. guys just get on with it. They don't moan, they don't complain, things get done. Match day always turns out to be a great match day. You never notice anything that's wrong. Yeah. The other side of that 
I was going to say, just leaving football, you can never leave that behind. So whenever you go back and you go to any stadium, especially if you go back to I mean, still a PPR season to go on, you still notice all those things that you had to worry about when you were there. Yeah, and uh, on, on a judgmental level as well, you th- you sat there thinking, you know, I, I'd have no. done better than this. <laughs> not anymore. No, 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 not at all. I think because, quite frankly, it wasn't a lot down to me. Again, it was down to the owners and it was down to the team that was already in QPR that are still at QPR. They're the kind of mainstay again. Um, yeah. We were lucky and we fortunate to have you know, a fresh kind of... Um, well, the amount of capital put into the business and also the sponsors that we, that we brought in that really changed the dynamic for QPR. And the experience of, I think when you're working inside of QPR, I think probably the best thing about that job for me, kind of how it led on to other things in my career, is if you work at Man United and you're a commercial director, a marketing director, a ticketing manager, whatever it may be, you work in a silo within a very big business. You work in a small club and with a very limited team you basically have to do everything. Yeah. You're all helping each other out at all times. And the exposure that gives you, when you think you come from the world of advertising in sport and you work a lot with federations and sponsorship, done a couple of startups or whatever, but now all of a sudden you're working across sponsorship, sure, but slightly different, hospitality and ticketing. You're working across all your digital media. Um, you are um, working on events, you know, running things like Player of the Year balls and whatever else, trying to monetize those. Um, your football rights you've got the, the, the playing side of the business and sponsor uh, program management CSR the community department the women's team and the, every week the manager of the women's team on my door saying David I really need more of your help can I get more of your time uh, the community department saying can you not help us pitch to a couple of brands or a couple of local companies to come in and give us some extra cash because look at the impact that a small amount of money can have on the on the community yeah um and that's where, you know, working in a small club, it's bloody hard because you just don't have enough time, enough hours in your day to be able to yeah. help everybody that you wanted to. Yeah, as you say, huge, huge machine. And obviously it's so, it's so um, you know, dependent on what happens on the football pitch on a, on a Saturday as well. Uh, you've got the complication of, you know, tens of thousands of fans that are either very upset or uh, very, very happy. And that rubs off in everyone involved. So completely fascinating talking about your, your time at QPR and um, your, your time in sport. And I'm conscious I'm skipping about 10 years here um, to, to now, but... You, you've moved on and uh, worked in you know a couple of various different roles but you now own Hatch House which obviously you know in terms of its consultancy you're working in sports still what, what are you up to now basically? <laughs> well, fundamentally Hatch House um, the, 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 the period before Hatch House I was an investor so you know I'd worked for billionaire after billionaire and multi multi-millionaire and um, the Skype guys to the Mittals and Flavio and Bernie to um, you know just Constantly working for, for other people, making them wealthy. And then I started my own startup idea uh, and took it to an investor who said, that's a stupid idea. Um, don't do your own startup. Why don't you kind of help us build a merchant bank, which was a completely mad turn in my career. But fundamentally, I, I went into that world of investment, taking this kind of hugely positive outlook on the world and um, where anything is possible to almost like risk analysis. And um, I spent five or six years investing, um, first two years advising inside of a merchant bank and then go to family office and then raising a fund. And fundamentally Hatch House formed out of this, which was there are a number of businesses out there that need no help, no support, mostly the high-tech businesses, deep tech, and they're going to find their way into venture capital firms without much help. Um, we started literally focused on the startup world because kind of that's where I've been investing. But we basically, we created this methodology and it sounds a little bit um, too consultancy, but it was fundamentally a way of kind of understanding where is the value of businesses and how do you get component parts of that business, individual business units to come together, to have, them, have an impact across the whole business and to grow value and revenues for that business. And it was something that, that we... We've used on about 50 or so businesses now, uh, whatever stages they're at from, from brand new ideas, conceptualizing, thinking about how that business rolls out, um, all the way through to some corporate advisory work that we've done with IMG and, um, and whatever else. You know, we, we've kind of spanned the whole network. And when you're kind of looking across it, you're, you're kind of saying what interests me most 
is emerging trends and technologies, how things are changing and are changing at that increasing rate. How do you impact that into a big business? Well, you can't understand that if you're an investor sitting on the outside just deploying capital without rolling your sleeves up and actually getting involved. Mm. You can't understand that if you're sitting in a corporate job day to day, you have pressures, you don't have the, the risk associated with building a startup. You can't fully understand it if you're just in a startup because you're under different pressures and you don't understand how the corporate world works, so you may not have that experience. And we kind of sit in the middle of the investor, the startup and the corporate world, kind of going, look, fundamentally it's just about business. This is just about, you know, a story and equation we talk about. We talk about what is your product, what's your proposition, how are you going to get that into the market? Why should people care fundamentally? Doesn't matter what type of business you are, but let's make an impact in what you do. Let's do that in a very short time frame. So, you know, right now we're working on a, on a number of sports projects. We don't just do sport. We've, we're also probably my most important client to date in the, the child safety space. So keeping kids safe on mobile phones. Yeah. Um, new mission statement that we've developed with them about kids should be safe wherever they play in the digital world. Don't think I've ever had a more important client than that. Yeah. Amazing Israeli cyber tech. Absolutely. Did a lot of work with Israeli businesses because they're great on the tech side, but they need help on the commercialization and marketing and fundraising. Again, we're not a fundraising specialist in any way, but we've invested so we know what that process is like. And we're transforming businesses in, in some instances by taking kind of core raw assets and building around them to make businesses far more valuable. And I absolutely love doing that. Yeah. And taking concept ideas into big sports federations, presenting something that looks great on the page, but you've actually got to go and build and implement. Yeah. And taking that from concept to implementation um, is, is hugely enjoyable for us. Absolutely. Was it a conscious decision not to be sector specific then, not to stay in the the comfort zone of sport? And obviously, you know, you work with VCs and um, in terms of that type of thing, do you want to work in different sectors and areas? I think you have to stay connected to media and everything that that encompasses because that is your conduit, that is your distribution channel. How do you get to your customer, to your audience, to your fan base? Hmm. Understanding changing media habits and really, you know, EMAP to Eurosport. To the startups I did were really media platforms and yeah. being in the sports sector, but they are distribution platforms, a way of getting content and advertising communicated to from one to many, if you like. Um, around that, when we're looking at businesses today, I look at fintech, and I think, you know, not the whole fintech, definitely not banking systems, but fundamentally payments is a component part again of businesses, whether it be B two B or B two C. So you have to understand the fintech model and changes, which is why we did a, a you know a great fun uh, eight months involved in a blockchain ICO with a video platform called Veracity, which was one of the most successful ICOs of that period. Um, because I wanted to understand micropayments, I wanted to understand those changing consumer habits and how that might impact OTT. Um, we've done a few things in um, edtech. It's a completely random one for us. But uh, I think it's a nice sector to work in and people in that sector are great to work with. And again, they're trying to help, so there's not really our core focus. But I kind of bring it back to sport, which is our kind of mainstay because there's something about sport that we all love, right? It's, yeah. We're in sport because we've either played it to a degree, to a certain level. We've, um, we want to be winners. We want to be challenged. We want to fight. We want to, you know, beat the competition. Um, and again, like coming back to my, the first thing I said earlier, you know, like beginning this conversation about, you know, doing deals, it is winning inevitably. And like I said, it doesn't matter if it's a small deal or a big deal. You want to get that, that to that stage, that contract signed. Um, and in sport, it's still a little way behind other sectors in terms of innovation. I don't know many people who tell me they've had a great experience in the accelerator program. Or the accelerator program, the incubator program has really helped a sports tech company. Mm. Um, I don't know that many sources of real capital, real venture finance into the sports world. There are not that many deals being done. Everybody is fighting for the same fan. Everybody's fighting for the big clubs to give them a, a big budget to go and deliver a solution for them. And those are bloody hard to come by. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because investment's top-heavy, that you know they're going with the, the bigger clubs or the bigger brands? 
clubs don't have money to spend that typically they're outside of the top six maybe the top ten clubs don't have a huge innovation budget you know every time they may put money aside that money is needed for another reason you know through this period of um turmoil that we're going through right now all of those kind of surplus budgets will be will be eaten up very very quickly yeah. um you sack a manager the budget disappears right it's it's it can be that straightforward so and they also don't know what they're looking at i mean they, they there are some very smart people in sport of course um across sport but again unless you are trying to sit on the cutting edge of those emerging trends and technologies how the hell do you know which is the right solution to implement mm. and if the technology truly does work and if it's compliant with privacy policies and data policies and what the cost of implementation is it future proofed is it going to make you money are your fans actually going to engage in it and um we get pitched ideas all day long every day uh and uh again using the investment experience that i've got we're evaluating those opportunities and fundamentally our work doesn't come from us pitching consultancy it comes from suggesting an idea to somebody going have you thought about that yeah. Because if you did that with your business, it could take you off in that direction. I've got a, a piece of work that I've got to do this afternoon. <clears throat> exactly in the case in point, somebody's very interesting business, a very, very successful lady in front of this business. It's already a global business. We looked at it, I brought in a colleague to look at it with me. We had a perspective on it. We want to fundamentally turn the business upside down. Now, that will become a project or it won't. Yeah. It's, um, it's our view on what they're doing and how they can make that business far more exciting and potentially have an exit in a, in a, in a closer horizon. Wow. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that conversation. Sounds like you're uh, you're, you're going in all guns blazing. So, uh, yeah. podcast won't be uh, broadcast until obviously the lady is reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been very careful with brand names, so I'll. Uh, I'll let you off. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm definitely guilty of uh, focusing too much on the, the early days because I'm always fascinated with how you've got to the stage you are today. And I think, you know, we are running out of time. But let's look to the future now. Just um, what, 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 is, what does the next year or five years or three years look like for Hatch House? What, what's, what's up next for David Orman and uh, your business? So I've got um, an array of club clients right now. I uh, started advising one of the biggest um, angel investors in Europe um, recently uh, through a meeting at the end of last year, which is uh, puts me back a little bit on the on the investment side. And so starting to work out how that's working. Um, I have existing projects, uh, two hugely exciting projects in sport, um, one of which I can't talk too much about, but we will do announce very, very soon. Yeah, uh, I think you know a little bit about it, but again, we're on the NDA. Might do. Uh, a huge project, which is you know, the mainstay of, um, of the work I've done over the past couple of years. And I think this is it's kind of almost what, what we set up Hatch House to do and seeing the result of that work and what we've done with that business and where that leads me personally is, is, is a very interesting conversation, of course. And then working with a German business right now, which is... Uh, business called Kick ID, which is a phenomenally brilliant CEO and founder. Uh, he had this vision that um, fundamentally he's looking at the world kind of going in golf. Everybody's got a, uh, a handicap. You've got a standardized rating system. How do we put that into other sports? And he's developed some video AI technology. So if you record a five-side football match, then every single player is provided with a video kind of montage of their performance with statistical analysis of how they played, not up to scale stats, up to times a thousand, you know, 250 individual data points, wow. how you perform in different positions under pressure, and the ball comes to your left foot, your right foot, whatever it may be. But out of that comes a player rating card, just like a, uh, an EA FIFA foot card for you as an individual person. And it's basically, we're driving this into, into clubs, academies, federations, saying, we're not looking to charge you. You know, this is a this is a business model where fundamentally, they, if the kids want to get access to the content, they can pay for it, or their parents can pay for that content. But for you as an academy, you need a tool like this because it's an equalizer, and we could unearth talent using a uniform metric system. A kid playing in uh, China, in America, in the middle of Europe, they're all on a on a uniform analytic system, which basically says that this fourteen year old kid is as good as this fourteen year old kid. And from that, 
can we unearth talent? And uh, there's a whole heap of exciting projects that will come out of that technology that we're working on at the moment. And um, another fascinating business, which again has slightly been put on skid over the last couple of months with uh, people not out on the streets yeah. uh, during lockdown. But um, uh, very, very exciting project to be working on, one of which uh, I'm looking forward to the future. Yeah, wow. It does. It, it sounds fascinating. And I mean, the in terms of the, I suppose, the grassroots level um, statistic based stuff, it, it's definitely something really interesting. And um, yeah, as I said, um, super, super good insight in terms of your, what you've done, where you've been in terms of your, your journey from, you know, uh, learning all you did in terms of, I, I, you know, I talk about baptism of fire in terms of that sales process, learning early days and then how you've implemented that through to your time at QPR um, and then, you know, into into the more recent days now. So, um, yeah, David, thanks so much for having a conversation. And I'm, yeah, watch this space because even, uh, you know, the, the small bits that I know about, I know are super exciting. So finishing all these podcasts, we like to do a shout out to someone else or somebody else, you know, we've focused on you for the last hour. Is there anyone else you want to give a bit of a shout out to? Uh, I think just looking around my room now, I'm just going to say my dog, George, because he's had to listen to me talk for the last hour uninterrupted so waiting for me to take him for a walk love that well george very patient uh and uh thanks for your time as well george david cheers so much thank you thank you so much for having me you've been listening to fyi the podcast featuring the biggest challenges in business and marketing fyi was brought to you by love gun an award-winning branding and design agency based in london Subscribe, follow and share on Apple Podcasts or Spotify for plenty more where this came from.